Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And as you can see tonight, we have a pretty amazing and special show for you. Um, the gentleman here with us on the screen do not need any introduction. We have the amazing RFM. How are you tonight, RFM? Just great. Thank you, Rebecca. Glad to be here. Excellent. And Dr. Randy Bell. How are you tonight, Randy? I am terrific. How are you guys? <laughs> We are great. We are yeah. absolutely fabulous. We have been trying to do this episode for several months. We hatched this idea all together a few months ago. We wanted to talk about magic, not in the typical way that you talk about magic um, on a Mormon podcast, which might be early Mormonism, the magical worldview, treasure digging, um, magic. No, we're going to talk about is it Mormonism through the lens of magic or perhaps magic through the lens of Mormonism? Anyway, it's going to be an amazing event tonight, and Dr. Randy Bell is going to take us through it. His presentation is titled Magic, Manipulation, and Mormons. And I have a magic wand tonight. I forgot to mention that. We have some magical implements here. Do you think I should try it out, Landon? Shall Give I try to put shot. a spell on you? Shall Give I? Okay, let's see. Since I'm a li I am a librarian, I will say Biblio, Boblio, Boo, and see what happens. Anything? Uh, <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> I've turned him into a dog. It didn't seem that like so anything good. happened. <laughs> no, I'm afraid you're a dog now, Landon, so we can uh, either well, continue that, the program. <laughs> all my dates have said that all along anyway. <laughs> you heard it here. That's right. So, okay, so my magic wand works. That's good to know. Um, can I change you back? Let's see. Ready? Biblio, Biblio, boo. Uh, I don't know how to undo it. No. We don't know how to undo it. You're gonna. Do you remember that meeting? It was like a political meeting where the guy's on and he's got a cat filter on and he's like literally in a city council meeting. And he says, I'm not a cat. Anyway, it's pretty funny. Look it up if you haven't seen it. All right. Enough of this. Let's move on. Let's let Randy get going. Magic, manipulation and Mormons. Here we go. Well, you guys jump in anywhere and everywhere you want to. But the very first thing I want to say is on the next slide, and it is do not believe a word I say. Research what I say. I always start with this. I tell my kids this. This is part of critical thinking. Don't trust a thing I do because I'm going to do a few tricks. RFM is going to do a trick, but uh, research what we say. So next up is... Nothing here is paranormal. I, I, I'm in Vegas right now. I live here part time. And I took this picture of a show the other night uh, with a guy who does some really freaky paranormal. And you're going to think my tricks are so good. You're going to think you're wit witnessing the paranormal. But I'll roll my sleeves up and show that everything is uh, legit. I've just got this red hanky. Oh, wait, we need this on the big screen. What's that? Can we, can we go I back and see forth, this on the big Landon? screen, not the little square? Whatever you want to do. You, you guys are doing the magic photography on your end. That's right. Yep. Can we spotlight him, Landon? He, he's spotlighted right now. Oh, he is. Okay, it. sorry. We can't see it from our angle, but our audience should be able to see Randy on the big screen. That's right. Okay. I'll catch it on the replay. Go ahead, That's Randy. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> it was I simply take my <clears throat> red handkerchief, put it <clears throat> into my hand, and what do you know? It is gone. It is Whoa. gone. Oh my gosh. I am so good. And then as if that wasn't good enough, bam, it reappears. Uh. Okay. So we're talking about real magic. And it, it again, it's so good. You're going to think it's paranormal, but we want to kind of look at the technical side of magic. And then you're, I think I 
my, my objective is that we're going to make some pretty strong points that it correlates to Mormonism a little uncomfortably close. <laughs> so so uh, let's get on with it. <clears throat> so what, I want to kick things off and talk about Houdini because I'm a Houdini freak. I have a big Houdini collection. I'm going to show a little bit of it to you in a minute. But the first thing here with Houdini is uh, next next slide. We'll just keep moving along. We're going to move fast here. So Houdini is a household name from his era of entertainment. He is probably one of the only, if not the only, entertainer that is a household word today. He was born in Budapest, Hungary, uh, the son of a Jewish rabbi. He actually immigrated, his family immigrated, and he grew up in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. So his fame grew from escape routines. And basically his formula was, and pay attention because we're going to revisit Salt Lake City and see where this actually happened. He'd get a, he'd go down as an unknown entity and go down to the newspaper office, get a reporter, say, I'm going to do this crazy trick. Then he'd go to the police station or, or wherever and challenge them to break out of anything, a straight jacket, handcuffs, anything. He would do the uh, escape in public with the police handcuffs or straight jackets the, of course, the reporter would write a story, put in the newspaper, that was free advertising, then he would rent a theater and perform a big show and make tons of money. So it was a, a, it, it was a formula he invented, he developed, and uh, also I just want to say that Houdini had impeccable ethics, and we're going to talk about that in a minute as well. And then Houdini appeared to have supernatural powers, but he was adamant that it was all just a trick. Just like the trick I showed you, I told you uh, I was paranormal, I'm really not. And he, but he had, he possessed secret skills. He was a locksmith, he worked as a locksmith for years, nobody knew that. So when he came out and escaped from things, he looked magical, but he actually came with a secret knowledge, if you will, that nobody knew about. Okay, and so that's why he looked uh, uh, looked so good to the public because they had no idea he possessed this expertise. And of all things, he died on Halloween in 1926. So that added to the mystique of his name. He actually died of appendicitis in a hospital. Now he's multidimensional. This is a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame in LA. <clears throat> he was a big deal in his time and he's a big deal to, today. So, here, talking of stars, here we have a celebrity appearance by none other by, than the RFM. Uh, he's holding, RFM is holding the actual plaque Houdini would have gotten had he been alive. Uh, when, when stars get a star on the Walk of Fame, they get a plaque to take home, and this is the plaque. So uh, there's a, a star appearance. And, and I think picture we should describe that randy is not kidding this is the plaque randy has an uber collection of houdini paraphernalia and artifacts i think you said the second second largest in the i can't remember what you told me but it's quite a sizable and notable collection these are real items folks well it's in all humility the largest <laughs> all right then the largest mm -hmm. <laughs> but but uh, all humility aside let's keep moving so <laughs> quickly quickly so, there we go Thank you. Houdini actually came to Salt Lake City. And, and so what we'll see here is some fun stuff uh, right in Salt Lake. The Walker Bank branch building, this is the postcard that Houdini sent out uh, at the time. And he on this building, he hung upside down in a straitjacket. This building is right on the corner of Main and 2nd. 
and, it, and it's still there today. And then, of course, here you see the formula. The article came out in the newspaper, and this happened in, in cities across the country, including Salt Lake City. And then the next uh, slide, <clears throat> here is the building today. And I sat there for a long time to for the sun to get just right so I could get a beautiful picture for my freakish Houdini collection. And then that night, uh, well, later there was an article in the newspaper. Next one landed. And uh, here it is, uh, the, the article published in the Salt Lake newspapers. And then you, we can see the actual theater, which is on State Street. Um, and there it is, the, the theater still standing to, the day, to this day. So uh, literally Houdini performed in Salt Lake City at the Opium Theater. At least that's what it used to be called, but it's the same building. So what's interesting is Houdini had a very strong friendship with Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle. And we'll see in the next one that, of course, that, that name everybody should know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, was the author of Sherlock Holmes. He was born in 1859. He was a medical doctor. A lot of people didn't know that. And, and they, were, they were actually very good friends. And Doyle was convinced that Houdini had supernatural powers. In spite of Houdini's efforts to convince everyone it was all a trick, um, Doyle was, although very intelligent and very famous and uh, very wealthy, he was convinced Houdini was actually had real magic. So there's no socioeconomic correlation between being duped and not being duped and with being uh, smart or not. There's no correlation. Here's an example of that. So... <clears throat> Uh, RFM, do you mind reading this from the Smithsonian Magazine? Oh, sure thing. 2017 Smithsonian. In November 1887, a young writer named Arthur Conan Doyle published his first story about a soon-to-be-famous fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes. The Dark Tale, which appeared in Beaton's Christmas Annual, was titled A Study in Scarlet. Some of its most dramatic parts are set in the Salt Lake Valley in Utah in 1847, and follow a non-Mormon's interactions with the Mormon followers of Brigham Young. The novel paints a bleak portrait of Mormonism. The story includes forced marriage and violence, two things that were part of the British view of Mormons at the time. Yeah, and what kind of strikes me, uh, kind of hits home, is because I served a mission in England. So these are very real issues in terms of these prejudices that still existed at least in the 1970s and 80s when I went on my mission. So, and and you, there was a big concern about Mormons. And, and I, as a missionary, I can just tell you the prevalent uh, attitude that I knew amongst other missionaries and members was that was just all anti-Mormon lies. But today I think a little bit differently, and I'm just simply going to ask a question. And it's a little uncomfortable of a question, but it, the question is this, would you be okay if your daughter joined a group that publicly stated that it did not practice polygamy when it actually did. Okay. So John Taylor and others were going throughout Europe, France, and England. And of course, these rumors about polygamy came up and we're talking about the Nauvoo era. <clears throat> they adamantly denied that they practiced polygamy. These young girls would join the church and families they would take out loans from the church in the perpetual uh, immigration fund, travel to Nauvoo, 
get there, now be in debt to the church financially and learn that, oh, whoops, we actually do practice polygamy secretly. So uh, then they would write home. Their parents or family didn't have the money to bring them home. They're in debt. And uh, you can ask yourself how would you would feel if you were one of these people that were, were trapped by this. So Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle literally lived in this environment. And that's why he was very skeptical about Mormonism and wrote publicly in this in uh, uh, you know uh, negatively about the church. And you can one can decide whether he was justified or not. But those are those are just uncomfortable facts. <clears throat> so I do have a unique collection. I want to just kind of show a little bit so we get a sense of the background of magic because we're going to talk about another a number of magicians here in Las Vegas, and we're going to see that they virtually all copied, to this day copied, Houdini. So here it is. Um, this is uh, the Museo Museum. If you haven't heard of it, it's owned by Disneyland and it's owned by the city of Anaheim. And the collection that I have is called Houdini Unchained. And uh, then we go inside and this is uh, one of the first halls. There's a Houdini trunk and uh, timelines and so forth. And next we've got uh, Can I interrupt here for just a second? Can. This is Randy. Randy, yeah. interrupting for just a second to underscore the fact that this exhibit is your collection. Yes. Yeah. I I've got everything. Yeah. I've been buying this stuff since the 1980s. Uh, before you were born, RFM. Certainly before Rebecca <laughs> was born. Close. <laughs> before disco was dead. <laughs> and this is so in Anaheim. Just to be clear. It is in Anaheim, downtown okay. Anaheim. It ran for months. Uh, the curator there told me it was the most successful exhibit they've ever had. It drew celebrities. I, I was down there day after day. Um, I was so freaking excited, frankly, to, that my stuff uh, got into the public domain. And uh, anyway, but this milk can was actually in Houdini's basement when he died. The provenance is 100%. It, it was actually profiled in the New York Times. Uh, David Copperfield found out I owned it. He called me up and, and uh, I, I came up and saw a show and sat next to his dad. I brought my whole family. And then after the show, uh, we, we went to his warehouse and it was, I, I can't make this stuff up. It was David Copperfield, my son, uh, Carrot Top and me, the four of us for uh, probably six hours, maybe, maybe longer. <laughs> and, and Copperfield offered me a, a ton of money for it. And I, I thought to myself, you know, you're engaged to Claudia Schiffer and I've got the milk can and it looks like each other has something the other one wants. <laughs> Are you talking about a fair exchange of goods? Is that what you're talking about, Randy? <laughs> I, I, I held on to the milk can. I'm glad I did because he lo no longer has Claudia. So <laughs> all, all, all reasonable versions of a true story. So in the, uh, to the right, you see um, the uh, Chinese water torture cell. It's It weighs about 2,000 pounds. The real one burnt in a fire, but this is the uh, movie prop from a Francis Ford Coppola movie. And I could go on all day with, with that, but let's move on through the exhibits. And, and so let me just ask, so this exhibit was in the past. It's not being exhibited right now. Is that correct? But you do, there will be exhibits in the future, hopefully. Uh, yes, this exhibit uh, ran its course and we, um, right now we're looking for a permanent home for the e exhibit. 
And one reason I'll just interject quickly, the run, one reason why these uh, items come to me is I don't make a private trophy thing in my house. That's what a lot of collectors do. I've committed and I've kept my commitment uh, to make them available to the public and put them on public display. So a prominent collector will sell to me, but not to someone else who's gonna hoard it and, and create a private uh, collection. So that's a, a side note. You mean someone like David Copperfield? Celebrities, <laughs> here's Sam Young. Uh, in fact, here are five Sam Youngs. Uh, Ooh, we need five Sam Youngs in the world. I will say that. This is a great picture. <laughs> well, Sam flew in for, for the big, uh, the final event. And uh, it was really a lot of fun having Sam there. And, um, and so there we go. And then next we've got... Uh, Oh, here we go. On, on the, 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 in the museum world, just so people know how it works, museums get very excited about what are called 3D items, big objects. And they're a little less excited about 2D, you know, just a, a flat picture on the wall or a painting on the wall. So I've really been laser focused on 3D items. <clears throat> Excuse me. And on the left is Houdini's magic table. There are only two in the world. One's in a private collection like I just described. Mine's public. Um, he would leapfrog. He'd set up a show in a city like Salt Lake City, then he'd leapfrog to Denver, and he would do this leapfrog. And he, so there are actually two he had custom made. I've got one. He's got another guy's got the other. And uh, it just he, the one that just sold set a world's record of all magic memorabilia ever. Which Randy, frankly, on the magic table, what is the effect? The effect is that it's an automatron. I don't think I'm giving anything away, but he would kick a lever on the bottom and out of the table would grow this big bushel of flowers. But remember, this is, you know, decades ago and that seemed very magical, but it was all an automatron that self-concealed these flowers in the table. It was a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, it literally was a little over. So those are a few of the items. And then next we go to- um, I'm sorry, did you, you mention what was on the right it, side? Uh, Randy? Yeah, I missed that too. Huh? I'm actually interested. What's this on the right side? Oh, that's Orange a chrome. Two. I'm sorry, I'm kind of blitzing because we got a lot, a lot of material, but I'm happy to, happy to explain. Uh, what, what Houdini would do is you'd see those hooks on the top. They were cables that came from the ceiling. And Bess Houdini, Houdini's wife would stand there. The cone would- go over her and when they lifted the cone Houdini had trans or, or best Houdini had transformed into a gigantic uh, uh, bloom of flowers of all things so it was a it was a metamorphosis uh, switch hmm okay yeah. I'd love to see that that sounds yeah. amazing it's almost like a human-sized dove pan uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way but you're exactly right. Uh, so if you want to read more about it, the LA Times covered the, the exhibit and uh, just Google it, uh, LA Times, and you can read all about it. Tell but, us about uh, the crown jewel. Uh, well, this is, uh, yeah, the, well, I actually have about six crown jewels. I have about six <laughs> items nobody else has, or maybe one other person has. One of them is, is what's in this picture. It's called the metamorphosis trunk. And this is where the, usually the um, magician gets locked into the box 
in a sack and handcuffed. And then his assistant will get, climb on top, pull up a drape and drop it immediately. And they switch places and he's standing on top of the truck and he unlocks it. And there inside is his assistant all shackled up. So, and, and I, I mean, I go to magic shows every week in Vegas. This trick is still done to this day. Houdini invented it. <clears throat> yeah. So um, the, one of the things that has fascinated with me about Houdini is he wasn't just a magician. He was also a locksmith, an author, a classic magician. He was a movie star, an inventor, entrepreneur. There's all these dimensions. So next we're going to see that there is also, uh, there's an entertainment side that we just took a, gl a glimpse of, but there's also a dark side of magic um, and, uh, or black magic. And Houdini was really into this. And, and here's a souvenir program where Houdini looks very mysterious and almost evil. Um, and next we'll see a room in my collection uh, in the museum that I didn't show you. And it's kind of, a lot of people would walk up to this room and not walk into it. They were kind of superficial. And Rebecca's got a crystal ball. <laughs> I do. Would you expect any less of me? Of course I do. I'm looking for Nephi. Nephi Anderson. Are you there? <laughs> I think Tim Bowder knows exactly where to find them. <laughs> so this, this room is really quite the opposite. And there's... Um, uh, on the wall is a clock, and Houdini used this in his routine. And here's where the here's where the fun is. Houdini was not pro seance; he was actually exposing fake seances. And so people were turned off without even having a mind open enough to walk in the room and actually, you know, read up on what were on the museum walls. But Houdini had a um, part of his career was dedicated to exposing fakes and frauds. And that is one of the reasons why as a kid in elementary school, I was so enthralled with Houdini because he had this kind of um, energy to go after the bad guys and had the courage to go after the bad guys and go after the frauds. And we're gonna talk about that in a wider context in a minute, but uh, that this is a room uh, full of stuff, but I just kind of wanted to point out that Houdini was actually a good guy that went against the bad guys. So uh, on the left is a book that Houdini wrote called A Magician Amongst the Spirits. It's from my collection. And on the right, you see a vintage picture of Houdini where he's demonstrating how he holds hands in the seance, but he uses this trick to hold a trumpet and blow a trumpet that supposedly is being blown by the spirits. So he worked with Scotland Yard. He worked with uh, the police up in uh, Toronto and detectives exposing frauds. And the, and the frauds, the fake psychic mediums, with your, the exception of Rebecca, um, <clears throat> were furious with Houdini. They hated Houdini uh, because he was wrecking their business. And even though... <clears throat> excuse me, there's psychics on every corner in U.S. and uh, in the U.S. and around the world. Um, even back in Houdini's time, it was even a bigger business and Houdini uh, crushed it. So would so, this be a trick where I'm picturing that the lights go out, you hold hands, and then he has a horn that's right there kind of under the table and he's, you know, spirits, 
let us know that you're there. And then he himself is going, <laughs> that's great. I like that. I mean, yeah. I have to use that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They blow horns or they ring bells or they right. do all kinds of things that were manifestations of the spirit. They were all fake. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, actually RFM said this line, <clears throat> excuse me, we love being fooled. And what I'm trying to get at here is that there's ethical magic that's for entertainment and there's unethical magic. There's the fake psychics, there's the spiritualists, there's the street con artists, the three, the three card money and the shell games. This is all unethical magic where things are manipulated to take advantage of people. Um, and so there's a clear line here, but what's interesting <clears throat> is that both groups are using the exact same, same skill set and the exact same tools and the exact same manipulation devices. They're exactly the same. It's more the intent. Are we entertaining or are we conning people out of their money and time? So there's the distinction. Down there in the bottom left, I think I know that trick. The one with the, um, it's bottom left to me with the hand, with the, the, the pencil, the yeah. floating pencil. Yeah. Do you see that? Are you doing now, it? Can we? Yeah, I don't know. Can we get this up here? Can we get a close up here? Can you spotlight him, Landon? Can we get a close up there? Come on. There I we just go. Need a spotlight, little spot. He's I can't see it. it, but I'll just pretend. Can you see it, Landon? Yep. We yep. can see it. The and the deal is, though, of course, right? That what you're what you're doing is on the other side. Uh, you see, you have your forefinger extended to hold that in there. See? Can you see that? Uh huh. Yep. Okay. Now the trick, of course, is just to whoa. The trick, of course, now is now to be able to take your hand away and still have the pin there. That's the amazing thing. Uh, yeah. See? How does that work? Well, pretty well, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. RFN is truly. I hope magic. that we could see that. I, I, I wasn't I planning on doing that. I didn't hear that. the Velcro rip when you took it off. No, that's actually amazing. <laughs> oh, no. That's. Hold on. I got pause. The Wait show. a second. I got to try. <laughs> what the heck? Go ahead. I'm going to work on it while you talk. I'm trying okay. to. I hadn't thought of that little trick in forever until I saw the picture. I, I think David Copperfield's job is safe for now. Do you think so? <laughs> Probably. I was impressed. I can't do it and I can't explain it. So you have one gullible person that believes in you. It's not All gullible. you need is a few. So, <laughs> so that's ethical magic. Now, if he asked her to send some money, uh, <laughs> no, sending money's fine. Sending money. Never say no to sending money. <laughs> you know these people. Then uh, Houdini was very wealthy. That's true. That's by the cool. end of his career, Randy took me up for a tour of his Hollywood Hills estate. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. that was a fun day. Um, yes. So he's very wealthy, but he did it all ethically, and he he, he never lied, and uh, and he went after bad guys. I love the guy. All right. So moving on. <clears throat> so the dark magic are the psychics and the supernatural uh, levitation and ast astrology, black magic, witchcraft. Uh, these can be pretty dark subjects, and they can they can actually do a lot of harm. Um, so again, just making a distinction between the two. So moving on, um, there are a group of magicians that in addition to Houdini, because Houdini kind of started this trend of going after the frauds, but in more modern years, uh, this tradition continues. 
There's a there's a medical or not a medical a philosophical doctor out of L uh, University of Liverpool, Matteo Borsini, and he's written books and lectures and goes after fake psychics. That's kind of what he does. The amazing Randy uh, put up a million dollar check to any psychic that he couldn't expose, and he exposed a bunch, and then they just stopped cold turkey uh, trying to get the million dollars. Yeah, he's unfortunately those, passed away. You can find a lot of those videos on YouTube as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he's, uh, he did a lot of work to expose these guys. And then there's an act up the street um, on, in, in Las Vegas called Benichuk. It's at the Strat, the Stratosphere. And um, he does some crazy magic that really the first time I saw the show, is I could see how somebody would think he's paranormal. But he, he's actually on a mission to do, kind of carry on the amazing Randy's uh, thing, tradition of exposing fake magicians. So, uh, you know, ethical magicians don't like this stuff. And there's a number of them that go after them very, very aggressively. All right. So let's talk about going after the frauds. And uh, we're going to use this guy. This is, I can't make this stuff up. These are not these are this is a real real pictures real dude who's really whacked in my personal opinion uh his name is peter popoff he had this ministry where he would sell holy water or uh, uh faith kits faith uh, uh you know, kits and he made millions of dollars well the amazing randy and banachek uh, who are buddies uh before the amazing randy passed away noticed that his his act or his TV show, his ministry was suspiciously similar to what their magic act was, only theirs was ethical. People were coming in for entertainment. His was to build millions of dollars out of uh, innocent people. So they went after him. So in the next slide, we'll see. And to underscore that, just to make it really clear, if it's not already, because what he's doing is not for entertainment purposes. What he's doing is using magic tricks in order to get the audience to believe that he has divine powers and therefore will contribute more money to him. Yeah. Well, That's so the unethical part as far as magicians are concerned. When they take the tricks of the trade and start using them to pretend that they really have these powers in order to bilk credulous people out of their life savings. Yeah. And, and the skill sets that magicians have are very, can be very, very compelling. They can be indistinguishable to supernatural powers. So people, some people capitalize on that, as I think this guy did. And uh, he sold this free, um, free, as in, we're, we're going to hit you up for donations for the rest of your life, free, uh, Miracle Spring Water, um, on the bottom left picture are magic coins that if I, I forget yet what you do with the coin, but it, it brings in uh, wealth and prosperity and on and on. So in the next slide, we're going to see that these guys went after him. They exposed him, did documentaries and <clears throat> excuse me, media appearances, exposed him. The guy went bankrupt. And here you can see the amazing Randy talking to Johnny Carson. You can see Benichek who, like I say, has a show right down the street today uh, at the Stratosphere, uh, talking to Joe Rogan, exposing them. So in other words, this tradition that Houdini had has carried on to this day. And there's a certain segment of society 
who is who are not intimidating uh, intimidated by these bad guys and very aggressively go after them and you know do everything they can to kind of shut it down and i think that's cool i don't know what you guys think I think anyone who's sending money to a guy named Peter Popoff probably <laughs> deserved to lose the money. <laughs> oh, but I think the thing you have to think about is that many times these people are desperate. Like it's the end, you know, they're financially desperate. So they're going to invest. Maybe this, you know, will bring me luck or their health. They're having a health crisis. They really will try anything. And I think almost everybody can relate to a time where you think, what can I do? You know, you're at the end. These things offer a solution. If you make yourself believe, you want to believe, you know, you can you can fall for things. So not everybody is just purely gullible. Some people are just in really unfortunate situations and and desperate. And then these people prey on them. And that's where it's incredibly unethical. Right. Yeah. Just for a little bit of historical background, 100 years ago and more when supernaturalism and spiritism was everywhere in the United States and in Europe was immediately after the devastation of World War One, and the thousands and hundreds of thousands of young men and, and women too, I'm sure, but mostly young men who were cut off in the bloom of life. And now their parents go on with their lives, but they want to have some assurance that they still are alive in the spirit world. And spiritists would come in to bridge the gap and say, we have the power to communicate with your dead son and convey messages from him to you and from you to him, and you will pay me very well for the privilege of that. Yeah, well said. In fact, after Houdini died, his wife, Bess, would hold um, seances once a year for 10 years on the roof of the Roosevelt, not the Roosevelt, the um, Nickenbacker uh, Hotel. In it wasn't the Biltmore. That's Bill, guys in Dawson. Oh, wasn't the Billmore? <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> where you, I don't know where that came from. Um, in Hollywood, and trying to get Houdini to come back because they made a pact that if they could, they would, and uh, he never showed up. So, uh, so I, this is kind of a great intermission before we get into more of the fraud stuff to stick with legitimate magic. And RFM, did you? you I understand you have something to show us. I want to try something, okay? So I haven't done this really. I've practiced it a couple of times, but uh, I haven't performed this since the 1980s. And then it was only once. Because what I'm going to try and do is an experiment. And when you see this, you'll understand that it's an experiment. We're going to be using a deck of cards, 52 cards, regular playing cards. But I'm not going to be using the cards. I'm not going to be handling the cards. In fact, I'm not even going to be seeing the cards. Landon, you've got a deck of cards there, correct? I've got them right here, straight from 7-Eleven. Okay, you're somewhere in Utah, aren't you? <laughs> What's that? Or you're somewhere in Utah, right? Yes, yes. Okay, and I'm in a different state entirely. I'm not in that room, am I? No, you are not. Okay, this is the long distance card experiment. So <clears throat> what I'd like you to do, take that deck. Now, you bought that deck yourself. I didn't give it to you. That's correct. I just bought it today. Okay. And it's from 7-Eleven, you say? 7-Eleven, Slurpee all over it. <laughs> all right, great. Would you please, I tell you what, um, nah, I want to do it this way, okay? Because I think you're pretty good at handling cards. Is that true? Uh, I don't know about that, but I can get it. 
You know the difference. You said something suits? earlier about strip poker, Landon. Yeah, yeah, that, so, that, you know, you don't be afraid. Don't hide from our viewers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so go ahead and shuffle those cards up. Would you do that for me? You've already taken the jokers out. Yep, I've taken the jokers You've out. You've got a space there in front of your camera on the table where you can shuffle the cards, right? In yep. other words, a space where I cannot see them. Keep them below the camera level, please. Okay. And also, uh, Randy can't see it. Nobody can see it except for you, right? That's correct. Okay. So go ahead and shuffle those up until you're you're satisfied they're shuffled. Okay. Well, I've been shuffling them all, all night here. So I... Have you? Okay, go ahead and put them face down on, on the table. Cut, okay. the, cut them in half. By the way, since I can't see these, I'm going to have to be very, very careful to describe what it is I want you to do with the cards because I can't see them. Okay. And I'm not going to see them at any point during this trick nor am I going to touch them. All right. All right. So go ahead and take the cards, put them face down in front of you. Okay. Call it the deck. Go ahead and cut the deck Okay. and complete the cut. Okay. All right. Now, here's what I'd like you to do. Pick up the cards in one hand face down. Okay. Take the top card. Don't show it on the screen. Don't show any cards on the screen, please. Okay. Take the top card, turn it face up to you and name that card. Uh, four of spades. Okay, now set that face up on the table in front of you. Okay. All right. Now, take the next card off the top, turn it face up to you. Okay. Name it out loud. Six of diamonds. Put that one face up on top of the four of spades. Okay. Now the third one. It's a ten of diamonds. Okay, put that one face up on the pile. Okay. Next one. Uh, Ace of Hearts. Do the same thing, please. Okay. You've got the hang of this now? Uh, yeah. You want me to go through the whole deck? <laughs> no, it's good because I just realized I got ahead of myself. I think I did this before with Rebecca, too. There's actually two parts of this trick, and I get excited because I want to get to the, the exciting part, but we have to lay the groundwork first, okay? Put the cards that are on the table face up. Put them back up on top of the deck where they were before, okay? Okay. In the same order. All right. Order. I'm sorry? In the same, same order. order. Well, yeah, just put them back on top of the deck, okay. please. Okay. Okay, because they're face up, put them on top of the deck. Okay. Should be easy. You handle these cards, right? Yep. You know enough to play strip poker. That's right. Yeah. I okay. lose a lot. <laughs> so now what I want you to do, okay, this is, this is how we start the trick. Excuse me. Take the cards, put them face up towards you, okay? But don't let us see any of the cards, okay? Just fan them a little bit in front of you, all right? Okay. From the middle of those stand-up cards in front of you. Don't pick a card, but let a card pick you. Just whatever card seems to suggest itself to you from the middle of the deck. Don't name it. Okay. Don't show it. Okay. Take it out of the middle of the deck and put it face up in front of you on the table. Okay. Take the rest of the cards, put them together, put them face down right next to it. Okay. Do I keep the four that I'd pulled already separate? What are you talking about? Those are on top of the deck. Right. Do I do I leave those on top of the deck? Yeah. Okay. Okay. They're face down, right? Uh, they are now. <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> okay. This this shouldn't be this hard. Maybe I'm making it hard. So you have a deck face down, and you have one card that you've pulled out laying beside it. Is that face where up. we're at? Yep. Yes. Okay. Yep. Now look at that damn face up card. Okay. And memorize it. Okay. You're the only person in the world who knows what that card is. That's right. If you forget it, 
by the time the trick is over, we're all in trouble. <laughs> okay. In fact, you have a piece of paper there I somewhere. I do have a piece of paper. <laughs> okay, just You're write not trusting Landon, are you? I'll write down the name of whatever yeah. that card is, okay? Because we want to keep a record here. I'm at that write age. Write that down. <laughs> That's so funny. Do you have it written? I do. Okay, good. Okay, but I can't see where it's written. I can't see the card either, right? No, you can't. Okay, take that face-up card, your card, the card that only you know, put it face down on top of the deck. Okay. Done? Yep. Cut the deck and complete the cut. Okay. All right. Good? I'm good. Okay. Now that's part one of the trick. Now we're going to go to part two of the trick. This is where I got excited and went to the first time. Pick up the deck face down. Okay. Now, I, you shouldn't have to have me explain this too much because I already did before, right? You want me to do the four cards and tell you what they are? No. Now okay. I want you to go through the deck. Okay. Okay. Top card. Okay. Name it out loud. Ten of hearts. Keep going, baby. All the way through the deck. And uh, by the way, at some point, you're going to see your card. Okay. Somewhere between the first card and the last card, as you call them off, you're going to get to your card, right? I will, yes. You'll know it's your card. Nobody else is going to know it's your card. Okay. Your job is not to give it away. Okay. Don't let anything in your voice or your face give away the fact that you're naming your card when you get to your card, all right? Okay. Poker all right. face. I don't even remember what my card is. So. Oh, just my look where you wrote, Just look where you wrote it down. <laughs> Poker but I've got face, it written Landon. down, so we're good. Poker face. <laughs> <laughs> Here I watch I watch all the time on uh, Texas Hold'em and they always uh, they always do this so you can't read. Them. Oh, there you go, you got it. <laughs> okay, can that's you fair. See go the ahead. cards though. Can as long as you can them? see the cards. Now go ahead. Okay. okay. Six, six of clubs. Deck, turn up the top one and name it. Okay, it's three of clubs. Put it down face up. Nine of diamonds. Okay, keep going. Queen of spades. Six of hearts. Four of diamonds. Seven of hearts, four of hearts, 10 of clubs, jack of hearts, queen of hearts, king of clubs, king of clubs, five of hmm. spades, eight of hearts, nine of clubs, uh, queen of diamonds, two of clubs, five of hearts, uh, Ace of Spades, King of Diamonds, Five of Clubs, Five of Diamonds, Eight of Diamonds, Seven of Diamonds. Okay, hang on a second. Hang on a second here. I know what happened. You didn't hear the first card. No, it's okay. What 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 happened is I got to try and keep the audience from you know dozing off <laughs> while you're reading these cards. I tell you what, why don't you instead of just doing it monotone, why don't you give it a little life to them? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Four of clubs. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Keep going. Eight of clubs. We've got the three of hearts. Oh, coming up with the two of spades. <laughs> Four of spades. Followed quickly by the six of diamond and ten of diamond. Then we've got the ace of hearts. The nine of hearts. The jack of diamonds. Two of hearts. Ace of clubs. Six of spades. Are we getting close to the end? Seven of spades. We're almost there. Seven okay. of clubs. Nine of spades. Eight of spades. Queen of clubs. Two of diamonds. 
uh, one free small Slurpee. That one doesn't belong there. <laughs> Ace of Slurp. No, but it sounds like a good idea about now. Ace of Diamonds, Jack of Clubs, Jack of Spades, Ten of Spades, King of Spades, King of Hearts. Playing with the King of Hearts. Three of Spades and a Three of Diamonds. Okay, that's all 52 cards you that's got from 7-Eleven? From 7-Eleven, yep. <laughs> Is it correct that at some point you did name your card as you went through the entire deck? I did read it, yes. Okay. Would you please picture that card in your mind? Okay. I mean, really, the real card. Yeah, I'm picturing it. <laughs> okay, so the thing is this. You're the only person in the world who knows what your card is. That's Do you know correct. what it is, Rebecca? I don't know what it is, although I'm going to work on finding out while you're finishing. <laughs> okay. All right. I just want you to concentrate. Like I said, this is an experiment. Obviously, it's not going to work every time. Well, that gives me... Okay, let's put it this way. There are There's black cards and red cards in a deck, right? There are, yep. Half are black and half are red. That's correct. Think about the color. Okay. Okay, I'm... I'm getting black. Is it a black card? It is a black card. Okay. Black card. So, well, that's 50-50. Maybe I should stop there. If I were smart, I probably would. But I'm going <laughs> to press my luck. Because there's, you know, the difference between face cards and non-face cards, right? Yeah, the prophet lets you play with one and not the other. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, the face cards are the ones with faces, right? The jacks, the queens, the kings. Yes, yes. Okay. And the non-face cards are everything else, the aces through the tens, because yep. they don't have faces. That's correct. I have to explain this for a largely Mormon audience, I guess. <laughs> um, a lot of times, people are attracted to face cards when they see them, and they, they fan them in front of them. And I say, you know, just let the card pick you. But I'm not sure that you did that. I'm not sure it was a face card. It I don't think it was a face card, was it? It was not. Okay. It's black. It's not a face card. Let's see. The two black suits are clubs and spades, right? Uh, yes. Think about the suit. Clubs or spades, clubs or spades. Think hard. Is it a spade? It is a spade. <laughs> okay. So it's a spade. It's not a face card. I wish it were a face card. There's only three of those. The non-face cards, there's 10 of them. The ace through the 10. Okay, look, I'm just going to go for broke. Landon, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm going to take a stab at it. I think I have a, a handle on it. Is it the two of spades? It is the two of spades. <laughs> How did you do that? Oh my you see, God. the thing is, that's impossible to do because you were the only person in the world who knew that. And for me now... To sit there and say, well, how did you do that? Well, very well, or, well, it's magic or something <laughs> like that. That's all fine as far as magicians go. And even the bull crap about it being, a, you know, an experiment in telepathy, ESP, all that stuff. That's all fine. Where I would cross the line with you, Landon, is if I said that these powers that I have will also help me heal you or someone that you love who's suffering and you need to pay me so I can heal them or have something that will heal them like the water or the coins or whatever it is. That's across the line. If I say that by these powers, I can contact your dead relatives because they have messages for you and use similar uh, techniques in order to fake that, 
that's crossing the line from a magician's point of view. And if I were to say that this power also gives me access to God or divine beings from whom I receive messages that tell you how you should live your life and how you should interact with me and how you should give me what's in your bank account, that's crossing the line as far as magicians go. But doing what I did is fine and dandy, and hopefully it was somewhat entertaining. Wow, that that, that was really impressive because you freaked us out. <laughs> I bought those cards today. You had seen nothing, and you somehow picked the very card that I picked. I have no idea how you would do that from uh, across the several states away. So <laughs> thank you. Well, that is the idea. So I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad it worked out. So Randy, that was uh, that was the um, the RFM intermission. The RF intermission. <laughs> the RF intermission. Two thumbs up. That That's was amazing. awesome. Beautiful. No, and I have to say that he practiced that on me when I was in my office. I had a new deck of cards. I was somebody that was not even allowed to play Uno because those were a gateway card to face cards when I was growing up. Yeah. Like no experience. So he was, RPM was very patient with me. I didn't know how to shuffle. I didn't know how to, I didn't even know what a spade was. He spent like 45 minutes trying to practice <laughs> this trick on me, but with the same result, I was blown away in my office. I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, it's I couldn't It's easier to it. guess the card correctly when she can't even identify them herself. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, well, it has these little bumps on it and it's sort of, there's this lady. Yeah. I, I, I don't say, know yeah, anything that's but seven of diamonds. I'm not, no, imagine how ostracized <laughs> I was at BYU, not even knowing what Uno was. I mean, yeah. literally, I was a freak. So well, Uno did, is the loneliest number. <laughs> did, did you put the small Slurpee in the in the card deck too? Is that, was that you? <laughs> yes, that was our That family. is your reward small for being Slurpee. such that's a right. wonderful <laughs> audience member and participant in this minor marriage. Wait, hold that again is that really in there i thought you were kidding i thought you were making a joke that's no, really in no, there. It's in wait there. hold it up <laughs> i want a small slurpee and saw an incredible trick this is my night this is your night this is incredible back to oh, randy back to randy <laughs> to i don't randy. want to steal hold the oh, no, keep going uh, it, i'll start I juggling myself a gateway card <laughs> gateway. yeah a gateway. gateway uh trick that's awesome all right so uh <laughs> thank you rfm so I want to talk about this concept of magical thinking because uh, I want to kind of get into the mechanics of magic and, and what's going on. So here we see the next slide. Okay, so here's a quick crash course in magical thinking. And what I did is uh, research some things and came up with the what, who, where, when, why, where magical thinking is. What magical thinking is is a strong belief that's based on no credible evidence. It's a superstitious belief uh, that links two unrelated things. For example, it's sunny because I am happy. Well, you may be happy, it may be sunny, but they may not be correlated or maybe the other way around, but there's, there's no correlation between the two. The who is virtually everyone, including me, <clears throat> including anybody who's honest, uh, will we'll, uh, uh, admit that they engage in some level of superstition or magical thinking, if you really think about it. It happens every day. Um, and the why is kind of interesting. The best explanation I could find from the literature was basically magical thinking takes us from our pain. I mean, life can be tough. It, it just is. And we have our health issues, uh, you know, loved ones die, uh, all kinds of things uh, go haywire in life. 
And magical thinking is kind of a reprieve, it's kind of a somewhat of a self-medication to take us from our pain. And I can completely understand that. And the where is, is interesting. It happens anywhere from African villages to New York skyscrapers. I mean, the middle picture here is a skyscraper where they skip the number 13 in the elevator. So this affects all walks of life, everything from Lucky Charms to 666. When I was a grad student at UCLA, <clears throat> there was an article about Ronald Reagan. He lived on at 666 St. Cloud, which is in Bel Air, which is literally a couple blocks from the, the building I was taking most of my classes in, in, uh, in uh, school. And so I actually walked up there and Bel Air is not a pedestrian friendly area, just FYI, no sidewalks. It's just limos going up and down the, the narrow streets. And I found 666 St. Cloud, but they have changed the address from 666 to 668. So this magical thinking or, or the fear of being associated with it affects everyone from uh, villagers to the president of the United States. We're, we're afraid of the, the number 13. Some people carry a lucky charm. They're afraid of a black cat. There's all kinds of stuff. We could, This could be an, its own episode. So but you, that's what magical thinking Ron, is. Are you saying Ronald Reagan was really the beast? <laughs> yes. Uh, I am not saying that. <laughs> I think there are some people that would say that. <laughs> oh, well, we're not going to say it here. <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> All right, so that's our crash course in magical thinking. So moving on, <clears throat> uh, the, the kind of going drilling down a little bit is the gambler's fallacy because I, I'm kind of laying a foundation that's going to become more, far more relevant when we get into Mormonism. Uh, the gambler's fallacy is basically believing past losses predicts a future win. So what the the, the casinos, which are I can see out my window um, up the strip is are keenly aware of these concepts. And they know that the people that have the, uh, the inclination to gamble, they, they believe, for example, if you flip a coin and this quarter comes up heads three times, they believe that next time they've got to get a tails because it's only fair. The coin has no memory. The coin isn't thinking, it's an animate object. Your chances on the next uh, flip of heads or tails are still 50-50. But the gambler thinks, hey, because the slot machine's been wrong or hasn't had a payout 20 times, I am owed a, a big return now. Well, that's the gambler's fallacy because the next time you pull the handle, the odds are exactly the same and there's absolutely no correlation to it now winning where it's had a, a, a run of bad luck. So that's the gambler's fallacy. Any, any questions from the classroom? <clears throat> no, that okay. makes sense. It's similar to sunk cost then, sort of the same thing, that I put so much into it, something is bound to come out. And I think everybody's guilty of that. You just feel that's how the universe works. You just yeah. do. Well, that, that's I'm, I'm glad you said that, don't... Rebecca, because that's our next our next point. I'm sorry, Landon, go ahead. I was going to say, that's why a lot of people don't don't leave the church, is they, they've yeah. put a lot of time and effort into yep. it. Yeah. Yep. You're a little ahead of me. Oh, my head getting there. <laughs> Never mind. Don't tip your hand, I'm Landon. That you're going there. <laughs> Go get a Slurpee and meet us back here in half an hour. Your crystal ball should have told you that, Rebecca. Anyway, <clears throat> what our future holds. Yeah, it, the the the, um, the gambler's fallacy is a very close cousin with the co sunk cost fallacy. It's a, there's a subtle difference, though. The sunk cost fallacy is to cling to a belief 
because of prior time or investments. So in other words, I don't want to throw it away because I've invested so much in it. And I'm, I'm, I'm attached to it because of that investment, time or money or both. And the next slide is kind of the same, the same thing. It's a cartoon where, you know, the, so, the, sink is ship, uh, the, the ship is sinking and nobody wants to throw out the anchor because it, it, it is an expensive anchor. So you don't want to throw it away. So does that all make some sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we see that every day. I think we definitely see people that just say, I can't, I can't afford not to. I absolutely, especially I think about people like my parents who have invested eight decades, you know, there's no way that even new information would probably undo what had been done. So, yeah. And this is all magical thinking. These are specific examples of magical thinking. So the next one is I want to get into critical thinking as a crash course. And the next slide is an ethical group. And there are lots of ethical groups. They have full disclosure. Uh, there's informed consent. And there's no such thing as undue influence going on within the group. Undue influence is the classic um, example in law school would be, you know, you, the, the guy goes into his mother on her deathbed where she's delirious and has her sign a, a trust form to give him all the house and money and leave his siblings out. That's undue influence. So in other words, <clears throat> it's manipulation. And if that's, that, that is not okay. In fact, it's illegal. You can go to, you, not only if you sued civilly, you can go to prison for undue influence. Um, so let's talk about what magic is because, and we're trying to bring all these moving parts together in our heads. Magic by definition is deliberate rehearsed deception for honest or dishonest intentions. So RFM is, although we love him, he was deliberately deceiving us. Okay. Uh, and I plead guilty. You know, I was deliberately deceiving you. This was a trick. Okay. That's an ethical magician or ethical deception for entertainment purposes. Everybody knows that. So the next slide is a quick crash course in critical thinking. It's basically Aristotle, three quarters Aristotle, one quarter me. Ethos is our, look at the question ethically. Uh, logos is a logical pathos. Does it emotionally resonate? And duos, have I looked at both sides of the story? Your chances of landing on a smart decision are better when you kind of follow this simple formula. And the next slide is a breakdown that's a much more involved. We're not going to go through this, but I just want to say RFM and I did an episode with John DeLynn on critical thinking. And I listened to it again today. And I got to say, RFM, we did a great job, <laughs> but, but no um, doubt. <laughs> it's, it's episode 1587. I just want to make a plug for it. Cause you, if you don't know what the terms on this slide are and you think you're a critical thinker, you're not um, it, critical thinking is a deliberate. Uh, there's a deliberate effort to learn a certain strategy that academics have put together. That's very rock solid. So if you want to, if you want to do that or do something to get at, uh, critical thinking, that's a quick uh, uh, reference point of where to go. So we've talked about magical thinking. We're talking now about critical thinking. The next thing is <clears throat> a simple rule. Uh, and this is a book from Martha Stout out of Harvard. And uh, the, the catch-all of this book is that there are bad people. One out of 24 people statistically across the world are sociopaths. They have no conscience. 
And, and that's a whole, again, a whole nother episode. But the 3X rule is that if you catch somebody in your life, anybody or any organization lying to you three times, get them out of your life, okay? Um, you're dealing with a predator or a sociopath, antisocial personality disorder, psychopath. Uh, there's a lot of names, but they're bad. They're bad folks and get them out of your life. So that's a quick crash course in uh, some of the high points of critical thinking. <clears throat> All right. So there is an implied contract with magic. And we're going to see that here. This is the Magic Castle in Hollywood. And I've been a member there well before you were born, Rebecca. Um, I, I've yeah, been a member there that, in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. And There's it's a, a reason it's she's dressed like Isadora the... Duncan, you know. Exactly. <laughs> There's a reason I'm she's dressed for... like Isadora Duncan. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my magic. Well, that, was, that was Gloria Swanson. I, I know that was Gloria Swanson, <laughs> but I still feel like I'm kind of dressed like her a little bit. <laughs> You, uh, <laughs> okay, you look great. So it's a it's a it's a big uh, mansion in Hollywood Hills. It's a private club, and uh, let's go inside. <clears throat> and more oh, look at that. celebrities. Look at uh, that. And, you guys Atlanta look so handsome. All dressed LA, up. Uh, let me know, and and we'll all uh, go party there. Uh, when you walk in, now this is really important with this implied contract. When you walk into the Magic Castle or I walk into a show on the uh, Las Vegas Strip or any of these magic shows, there's an implied contract that we agree that the magicians or RFM or I, as we do magic tricks, we may lie, misdirect and manipulate, okay? It's okay, okay? And in return, the audience has the right to try and crack the code and figure out how it's done. It's a game. Okay, and it's a really fun game that even to this day, I just love it. <clears throat> but when we walk out the door, that that right to lie and deceive is over. We're not <clears throat> giving that right to our politicians or our churches or our schools or our businesses. That's not how society should work. It's an implied contract that is OK inside the doors of the Magic Castle and it's wrong or criminal or fraudulent outside the doors. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's key. That's an absolute key <laughs> indicator right there because you agree to put your critical thinking on hold when you go into the magic castle. And that's the fun and the entertainment of it, right? Yeah, or turn it up, turn the dial red hot to try yeah. and catch people. That's true yeah. too, when you're trying to look for what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so the next slide is, <clears throat> The mechanics of magic, and we're getting, we're, I'm laying a, I, I hope to be a really solid foundation where we're really going. So next we got the seven laws of magic. I'm going to go through these quickly. This is a big topic, but we have limited time. Number one, the first law of magic is to manipulate perception. Magic is rehearsed deception for honest or dishonest purposes. That's the first law of magic. We okay with that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Number two, the first rule of magic. <clears throat> RFM and I have talked about this. The magician closely guards his or her secrets. You know, we'll show you stuff. We're not going to tell you how it does it for a lot of reasons. One is it wrecks the whole fun of it. You know, 
The game is, I'll do it, I'll lie, I'll manipulate, you try and catch me. Once you start telling the secrets, it just kind of, uh, you know, you know, it just kind of wrecks the whole fun, fun of it. <clears throat> okay. The Wait, game we've Martin talked about. speaking, but he's muted. I was going to say, except for my <laughs> trick, because my trick wasn't really a trick. It was an experiment in ESP that just happened to be successful because Landon and I managed to get on the same wavelength. That's right. Wow, I'm on the same wavelength as RFM. I feel. It was a brief moment in time. It was two ships passing in the night. Landon. I'm sure the Don't connection is blocked now. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So the implied contract we just talked about, the magicians lie and deceive, uh, but in real life, that's a no-no. Number five is magic. Now, we've kind of covered the first four things. The next three are kind of new topics. A good magic act is a three-act structure. If you really break a, a good magic trick down, I started with an, an ordinary handkerchief, okay? RFM started with not only a regular deck of cards, it was Landon's deck of cards that he never saw or touched, okay? You start with a regular, ordinary object. That concept's going to become really important in a minute, okay? The second stage is to tell a big lie, in other words, there's act two. I made the handkerchief disappear. And you guys were kind of, that's kind of interesting. I didn't see any thunderous applause. <clears throat> but act three is making it reappear. Well, there I saw, uh, heard applause from around the country from people watching the podcast. So it's a three-act process, okay? Number six, and this is critically important. If there's one of these seven laws that are most important, it's this one storytelling, which magicians call pattern, but storytelling is the number one secret uh, ingredient of a good magic show. I've been to countless magic shows <clears throat> and I've seen that where the technical magic is really pretty bad or even awkward, but the secret or the, the secret sauce of the storytelling was so good. I was thoroughly entertained. Okay. And so if you're going to pick any kind of uh, particular trait to make magic come alive, it's storytelling. Okay. I can't overemphasize that. Are we okay with that one? We are. Okay. And then ultimate, the ultimate goal, the best magic is indistinguishable from the supernatural and can't be duplicated. And I'm going to show you a couple examples of that. So if we're okay with the seven laws of magic, on the last point of paranormal and, and indistinguishable from the paranormal, um, there are Las Vegas is the magic capital of the world. Last night, I saw a guy who just made my head explode because what he did was indistinguishable, at least to me, 98% of the time, indistinguishable from the paranormal. He was so good. It took me a couple hours to crack the code to figure it out. Now I'm a guy that's been in the magic world since the 19th, well, since I was in elementary school, honestly. So I know most of this stuff, but I was so impressed. So if you want an example of what paranormal looks like and how good these guys have gotten, um, go see this guy, Frederick De Silva over at the horseshoe because he, and I had just seen Penn and Teller the night before, um, that was kind of B plus magic, but their storytelling is superb. But if you want to see stuff as indistinguishable from the paranormal, this is number one. And it's, it's gotten to that point.
Okay. If there are no questions from the class, we'll move on. Yeah. Was he as good as me? Okay. So, <laughs> huh? That's all I want to know. Was he as good as me? This Howard De Silva guy. Uh, it's it was not very close. Razor sharp close. <laughs> very close. I'll take that. Okay. Here's the show. I snuck my camera out. I I broke all the rules to get a picture. And and here I talked to him backstage and. Uh, and uh, we ha we had a good conversation. I'm going to be going back over and over to see this guy because I got to figure out how he did the whole show because it left me baffled in another spot. So moving on. <clears throat> uh, so remember that three part breakdown. You start with the ordinary. I want to I want to get into that now. We're going to start uh, really. This is where the rubber starts meeting the road. So here we go. Um, step one is to look ordinary. Uh, Ricky Jay, who's a prominent magician, he's passed away, said magic is all about structure. You've got to take the observer from the ordinary to the extraordinary to the astounding. Okay. So on the right is a picture of uh, my buddy, Danny Ray, <clears throat> who fooled Penn and Teller. Um, and, and he basically follows the same thing. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of demonstrate it for you here. So I've got a silver coin. Okay. And I've got a copper Mexican thing that I got these because they're about the same size. Okay. Now watch this trick. Watch this. Okay. I started with two ordinary coins. Okay. Rebecca, silver or copper? Um, silver. Silver. Okay. We'll keep the silver. Okay. Not bad. Not bad. Okay. And that's where I've taken the ordinary and gone to the extraordinary. And now to go to the astounding, I'm gonna reach into the camera behind your ear, Rebecca, and pulled out the copper. What? Okay. <laughs> so that's the three-step process. I'm astounded. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I noticed you're not as shocked as, uh, as you were with RFM, but you got the point. I'm trying to break it down to show how how a trick works. Okay. All right. So let's go uh, moving on. That's because okay. I milked it, baby. The <laughs> he was milking it. It was the storytelling. <laughs> it was the patter. Now that I know that word, patter, patter, patter. Yeah, I'm going to recognize that from now okay. on. The, the, as we move into Mormonism, having this foundation of what magic is kind of all about, the first thing you got to do is present something ordinary. Okay, I always start with an ordinary item in my routines, because if I invite friends over and say, you know, I happen to have this guillotine in my living room, <laughs> that, that doesn't seem so magical. <laughs> and my friends know it's rigged like hell. So that ain't going to work. Okay. I feel like you probably do have a guillotine though, Randy. I mean, you're just so extraordinary. <laughs> I don't have a, I, I, I draw the line of guillotines. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think Marie Antoinette was in, as impressed when she showed up. And <laughs> That's unethical magic. <laughs> so what the Mormon church did is they start out with something, someone very ordinary, a poor, uneducated farm boy. Okay. And this myth has been perpetuated to this day. And I'm going to prove that right now. Let's go to the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith 1 3. In th well, no, no, stay right here. Uh, there's three short sentences. The, the, uh, basically, Joseph Smith goes from the day that he's born to ending up in Palmyra, New York, in three sentences. No mention of education. Okay. No mention of anything. And that's from Joseph Smith's 
own mouth, okay? So the next slide is from the book Saints, which is the standard of truth. And we know that because it says so right on the cover. So, <laughs> and and I, I actually copied and pasted the first two pages. So I, you can see uh, there's nothing up my sleeve here. You start with a long discussion of the eruption of Tambora on the other side of the world, how crops failed, Joseph Smith having an operation on his leg. They abandon their home in Vermont and they end up, um, Joseph Smith, quote, hobbled through the snow with his mother, brothers and sisters to New York and landed up in Palmyra. Zero discussion about education or anything else, okay? Um, we'll see if something is being deliberately hidden here or not. So the next slide <clears throat> is from the Joseph Smith papers. And here is what Joseph Smith wrote. He came from, a, and I put it in bold, he comes from a large family having, having nine children. And he said, uh, pay attention to this word because it's going to come up in a second. We, not I, we were deprived of the benefits of an education. So all nine children were deprived of the benefits of an education, okay? That's what Joseph Smith said twice now, once in the Doctrine and Covenants, once in the uh, letter book, it's in the saints. Let's keep going. He even misspelled it to prove his point. Yes. <laughs> okay. So next uh, slide, we've got an apologist. Uh, I think this came from Brian Hales. And let's go to the next slide and we'll zoom in on what he says. Okay, he says, he's going on about how Joseph Smith was an intelligent guy, but uh, he didn't possess any remarkable skills uh, in terms of education. Then it says, the first bullet point reads, Joseph Smith wrote that he, it changes he, we to he. That's subtle, but that's significant because now he's eliminating the family, Hiram and the others, and focusing on Joseph Smith he was deprived of the benefits of an education. Well, that's not even an accurate quote. The actual quote is we, okay, the whole family. And we're about to show that that's simply false, okay? So here we go. And I'm taking a whole episode on the Dartmouth period, which I did first with uh, RFM on Mormonism Live, and I'm condensing a long episode into 30 seconds. But what those 30, what that long episode summarized is, Joseph Smith was born in Sharon, Vermont. He grew up around stoneworks and earthworks. There were all kinds of rumors who these ancient civilizations were that built them. The predominant uh, narrative was that there was the lost 10 tribes of, tribes of Israel. That came from Ethan Smith. It was taught everywhere. It, that notion was everywhere. <clears throat> then um, Joseph Smith uh, moved to um, uh, Sharon, uh, oh, he was born in Sharon, Vermont, I should have said. Then he moved to Lebanon, New Hampshire, which is right across the river from Vermont, five miles from Dartmouth. Then the, And that's where he had his leg surgery. Then he moved, the family moved to Norwich, Vermont. The house is still there in private hands. And the red dot is Dartmouth uh, College, okay? Guess who attended Dartmouth College? Well, first of all, the first professor at Dartmouth was Dr. Nathan Smith, a relative of the Smith family. And because of that relationship, and because Hiram Smith was intellectually gifted, he was admitted into the Moore Academy at Dartmouth College. And he attended there for four years. And Dr. Nathan Smith, who's not a relation, 
was a the uh, founder of Dartmouth Medical School. And he performed the leg surgery on Joseph Smith. And then Hiram Smith would tutor Joseph Smith for four years as he recovered from his leg surgery. And Hiram Smith not only attended Dartmouth, uh, lived in Dartmouth Hall, but attended over a thousand theological lectures at the Church of Christ, which should ring a bell because that's the first name of the Mormon church uh, before it changed, the name changed twice, uh, two more times. And, and then and subsequently went home because home was right down the street and tutored Joseph Smith for four years. So yes, technically it's true. Joseph Smith did not have a formal education. Hiram Smith did. So we is false because his brother had a very much a formal, elite, not just formal, elite education and tutored Joseph Smith. So it wasn't formal. It was informal tutoring, but it went on for four years. So by the time Joseph Smith showed up in Palmyra, New York, he was by most accounts, particularly in this uh, time, day and age, highly educated. Okay, that's the gist of that. Any any questions? Yeah, Randy, um, and that was pretty standard for that time frame is that families couldn't afford to send everybody to college. So they'd pick one child basically and send that one child to college mm -hmm. and everyone else was supposed to work on the farm. And that one child was kind of the person that was going to make the family name. So that 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 was pretty standard education for the time uh, yeah. I've read. Well said. Yeah. And uh, I got another slide to add a little more meat to this bone. <clears throat> um, we'll get there later. Uh, let's talk about storytelling. Remember, that's one of the elements. And uh, RFM, would you mind reading this? Sure. Um, from what is this? This is Lucy Max Smith, Joseph Smith Jr.'s mother. Okay, from his mother's account, we know there is, I see the bar of us, the totem pole of all of our pictures on the right side of the screen and covering the right side of this, of the words here in this quote. So I can't read beyond visions on the first line. Oh, you want me to read it then? Sure. Uh, from his mother's account, we know that the visions Joseph experienced while receiving Moroni's instructions must have been vivid. She wrote, during our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent their dress, mode of traveling, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings with every particular, their mode of warfare, and also their religious worship. This he would do with as much ease, seemingly, as if he had spent his whole life with them. Okay, so we know from Joseph Smith's mother that he was a incredible storyteller, and we also know that he appeared ordinary, although he wasn't. And you might be thinking of the parallels this sounds kind of like Houdini as an escape artist who had this secret knowledge from being a locksmith for years. Okay, you're starting to see some of the parallels converge here. All right, <clears throat> so moving on, let's talk, let's get right into Mormon magic, okay? A Mormonism is steeped in magic. Joseph Smith died with a junior, uh, uh, Jupiter talisman around his neck. Uh, Hiram wore, uh, uh, wore a parchment around his neck, which is based in uh, what I would call black magic or astrology. And a seer stone is on the right picture. And uh, that's 
steeped in magic as well. In fact, the word seer stone doesn't appear once in the Book of Mormon or the Bible. It, it's, it's, a, it's a Mormon term, and we're going to get into what a seer stone really is in a minute. <clears throat> so the next uh, slide is a seer stone is a, and the, uh, RFM, you're the one that told me this. You want to you wanna tell us what a seer stone is? We were just talking about this one time, and I said, uh, yeah, seer stone, that's a poor man's crystal ball. <laughs> yeah so not man. not every not everybody can have a slick real crystal ball like rebecca if you were poor <coughs> excuse me i'm not arguing that the smith family wasn't poor but they were the reasonably well educated um that you would just pick up a rock and call it a seer stone and it was it was obviously dirt cheap quite literally but it was equivalent to a crystal ball or crystal ball gazing Okay. Landon has one. Hold yours up, Landon. I know you did before a little bit. Yep, there it is. There you go. This is yeah, my Joseph can... Smith collection. I've got that. That's and, right. Yep. And I've yep. got a Jupiter talisman. He, he oh, does these every day. Yeah. He does. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's that's all magic stuff. I mean, it, it just factually is. All right. So moving on. <clears throat> so this again is a punchline slide, but and this is my own personal philosophy, take it or leave it. But if you get into Mormonism and, and like you go to a Vegas show and you try and crack the code or you go to the Magic Castle and trying to crack the code, how they did the trick, here's how Mormonism does the trick. It, it, it starts with Protestant Christianity, which is appealing for a lot of people, uh, not horribly controversial. I don't know many, you know, Methodist recovery groups, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> But uh, then you take you start with that apple and you add a lot of sugar, which is American folklore with the lost 10 tribes of Israel and, and the Indian mounds and the rock uh, stone caverns. Uh, that's American folklore. Then you add Greek mythology. Greek mythology had lots of gods, lots of goddesses, eternal sex, rights for the dead. Uh, Pre-existence is a term that came from Dartmouth curriculum. Uh, and it was steeped in Greek mythology. What had nothing to do with Christianity? Mormonism adopted it into <clears throat> their brand of religion. Um, then you have, uh, add Islamic uh, beliefs, which is polygamy, which is practiced to this day, uh, post-Jesus prophets, post-Jesus scriptures with the Quran, and post-Jesus prophets, which is Muhammad. There's your uh, Islamic uh, in introduction. And then the Masonic temple, where you have the temple, secret clothing, secret rituals, that's Masonic. You take those five uh, ingredients, which were all exposed, uh, Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith were exposed to all of these elements big time uh, in and around Dartmouth College before they even moved to Palmyra, New York. <clears throat> and again, don't believe a word I say, research what I say, because uh, I've had a lot of people uh, attacking me, but facts are facts. All right. Facts well, the thing I think is so interesting about this, Randy, is the connection you have with magic and the idea of, you know, here's an ordinary deck of playing cards. And it has been extremely important and even foundational to a lot of the LDS church truth claims to make Joseph Smith as dumb and uneducated as possible, thereby highlighting the miraculous nature of what he accomplished. Bingo, bingo. I, I've gotten uh, some nasty uh, messages and emails 
actively defending the right to keep Joseph Smith dumb. Okay. <laughs> they don't, they don't want a smart prophet. Now, I mean, my kid just got into UCLA. I'm telling strangers in the elevator, I'm so proud of the kid. You know what I mean? Because I went there, my dad went there, three generations. Yeah, I'm just excited about it. I, I, I tell everyone I have the chance to tell. But they don't want to bring up. I just went through a whole bunch of evidence. Multiple opportunities to talk about Hiram Smith attending Dartmouth and Moore Academy at Dartmouth. They, they admitted it across the board. And when it comes up, they play it down and they attack me as the messenger, uh, much in the same way as the fake psychics attacked Houdini for exposing their frauds, you know? So I'm inching a little closer to becoming like my hero Houdini. All right. I'm going to get you a hat, Randy, that says, make Joseph dumb again. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Cheers to that. All right. So moving on. Mormon deception. I, this, I'm, I'm sorry, this is a little harsh for some people to hear, but facts are not insults. I'm not trying to insult anybody. But all here's the first uh, point. All magic, inclusive, all magic, ethical and unethical, all magic uses deception. I used it. RFM uses it. David Copperfield uses it. Penn & Teller uses it. The question is ethic, ethical or non-ethical. So moving on, let's look at deceptions. And keep in mind the three strikes you're out from Sarah Lazar out of Harvard, for, you know, in terms of identifying the predators in our world, okay? From 1833 to 2014, and I've cited it and laid it all out, Joseph Smith and the history of the church, Joseph Smith to the day he died, denied having more than one wife, he himself. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, <clears throat> section 101, which has since been removed, explicitly says that these rumors of polygamy are false. That's how they recruited so many women from France and England to Nauvoo, okay, like we talked about. Finally, in 2014, it made world news that the Mormon church finally admitted the truth that Joseph Smith had up to 40 wives. So this is where my head personally exploded because I had always been told that all that stuff uh, in England were anti-Mormon lies, okay? That's an irrefutable. Now, I've, I've heard the apologists and they either dodge the issue or they say, well, of course he had to lie. Well, no, you don't have to lie. You can tell the truth. Uh, lots of Lots of ancient apostles and prophets told the truth and were stoned to death for it. Um, they weren't afraid to tell the truth. <clears throat> All right. So there's number one. Number two, the gold plates. On the left-hand side, I've taken pictures from my own missionary flip chart and my own missionary discussions. By the way, this is another episode where you could go through the whole missionary discussions of then yep. versus now. <laughs> yeah, that is an episode we've all been waiting for. That let's, let's do it, Randy. Let's do it. Okay. And let me just tell you, they're different. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but here's an example. Here's a picture with Joseph Smith and the gold plates. This is what I showed investigators for dis on discussions for two years tromping around England. Okay. Here's a quote right out of the memorized discussions, and I'll read this one sentence. By the gift and power of God, 
he, being Joseph Smith, translated the record from the gold plates and called it the Book of Mormon. Okay, this was the narrative officially in 2021. Russell Nelson tells the truth for the first time that I'm aware of that Joseph Smith actually put the seer stone, and we now know what that is, into a hat, and the plates weren't even in the room. Could you imagine me telling that to investigators? You, you know, and I, I don't can't imagine missionaries telling it to investigators. The church has admitted it, but I don't believe they teach in the investigators that they did it from a rock and a hat. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. I can't imagine missionaries now teaching that, that yeah. Joseph Smith translated from putting a rock in a hat because I don't yeah. think they do. No, and, and there's a movement now, a backlash among faithful Mormons saying, nope, that's wrong. It's not correct anymore. There's oh, a yeah, backlash. the Joseph Smith Foundation. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's a backlash. And what I love so much about this, this is a picture from a video of President Nelson doing that, is that even he could not bring himself to do what Joseph did, which was bury his head in the hat, right? He just kind of goes, ah, you know, because he himself, I believe, realizes how utterly ridiculous that looks to see someone sticking their head all the way in the hat. So he just kind of, okay. I think if he realized how utterly ridiculous it looks, he wouldn't have done the shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. All right. Here's side by side facts. Uh, again, we're strike two now with deception, because when I went around England, I was telling things that weren't true. Let's go to the book of Abraham. I've listened to countless long episodes about the book of Abraham. I can make, I can do this in 30 seconds. In 1912, the New York Times published a full page article exposing the problems with the book of Abraham. You know how many times I heard about this growing up in the church since the 1960s to today? Zilch. The church knew. The whole world knew. I didn't know, okay, because it was concealed completely. In 2014, the church finally admits in the gospel topic, uh, um, gospel topic essays that none of the characters on the papyrus fragments mention Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the book of Abraham. That's a stunning admission. Uh, in other words, we weren't telling the truth all these decades. I, I taught uh, seminary, early morning seminary in the 90s, and I would read the lessons, and they, they specifically said in the 90s that the fragments had burned in the great Chicago fire, and I taught that to my kids, and it turns out they found it in the Metropolitan Museum in New York in 1950, and the church has owned it ever since. 67, so, but yes. When was it? 67? Yeah, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Yeah, so that's, that's what, 30 years later, they're still teaching that it yeah. burned up and that we don't have it? Uh, well, some it was thought to have burned up, but then unfortunately, it wasn't. It Yes. It would have been great if it for the actually church. matched yeah. the text of the book of Abraham, but as it was, it wasn't so great for the church, so they'd rather not dwell on it. Absolutely. Yep. 30 we're years later, we're still not being told that they have it or what. Well, we are if you will read the damn gospel topic essays, Landon. Well, yes, now in 2014, <laughs> but now, in time when right. I was teaching this, it was still in the books that that's what had happened, so... That's right. Yeah. In fact, that's Landon's shelf breaker is sitting in Sunday school and going, wait a minute, has anyone ever compared the book of Abraham to the Rosetta Stone? And we can read this now and within 30 seconds of Google, right, Landon? <laughs> it was like, came what an idea. Yeah. What a great idea. <laughs> I'm the so first one that's ever Randy thought of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, Rebecca. I think this is your show. You go ahead. No, no, no. I'm over talking and I always get accused of that. I'm sorry. I have like, I can't hear. That's my excuse. So go ahead, RFM. I was going to say we've hit on Randy's shelf breaker, which was the polygamy. Landon's shelf breaker, which is the book of Abraham. What was your shelf breaker, Rebecca? You never had a shelf, did you? I don't have one. I was like, I was born agnostic. Every single thing I found out about the church, I went, I knew it. Hot damn. I knew it. So that was me. I knew it was a trick. <laughs> I knew it was a trick. I was looking for the trick the whole freaking time. Just because my parents taught me things like the Moroni and the monkey in the box. Right, RFM? That's the kind of story I knew from very young. So you're bound to think there's something wonky about your religion if you're learning stuff like that. The main thing you need to know is if you want to see Moroni's monkey, you're going to have to pay. <laughs> it's not that's that kind moral. of show, RFM. That, well, that's the moral of the story. That's how I heard it. Yeah. No, you're That's what right. I heard. <laughs> you're a naughty, naughty boy, RFM. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I delivered three. Remember three X and you're out, but there's a bonus because I got three modern deceptions. Okay. We're we're under promising over delivering on Mormonish. Here we go. The sex scandal. A $250 million proposed legal settlement, which by the way was rejected by the judge because the judge says you're getting off too easy here, Mormon Church. Go back to the drawing table for sexual child abuse, okay? Every time we're talking about child abuse and the church, which is coming up in wave after wave after wave, please mention this one because it's so huge and it's still ongoing to this day. Okay, there's one deception. Number two is Prop 8. We know about that. CBS News reported that the Mormon church was fined in connection with their dishonest um, election manipulations. Okay, deception number two, modern, uh, modern day, um, latter day <laughs> deceptions, we'll say. And of course, money, uh, the SEC and uh, over $100 billion uh, hidden away in shell accounts, which is totally illegal. Well, notice a theme here, sex, power and money. And let me just say something as the guy. And if you believe the BBC, I've studied more disasters around the world than anybody. I don't I, I know that sounds very boastful, but I, that's what my career is. And every single case I've worked on, I mean, O.J. Simpson and I could go down a long list. Um, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, on and on. Spanky With and these the gang. predators, you see a theme, sex, power and money each and every time. It's right, right out of the playbook. And here's three Undisputable modern day deceptions. Couldn't agree more. And I've I've left you stunned. So we'll move on. <laughs> that was just like when RFM picked that card. <laughs> That's right. We just we couldn't believe it. Well, and I kind of think there are other kind. There are so many deceptions. I mean, you just list some of the major ones. Some of them are just as simple as believing that paying your tithing instead of buying food means that somehow food will appear in your refrigerator. You know, there's Magic wearing thinking. your garments is going to protect you. There are little everyday deceptions and things that you convince yourself to believe that impact your life. So there's the big ones and then there's the small ones every day, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, said. tithing, tithing is based on magical thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and Arvin, we were talking about this one the other day, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, I'm guessing you've never gone into court and said, your honor, 
My client walked by 25 houses and never robbed one of them. He only robbed the 26th house. So no, he didn't rob. He, he didn't rob 25 houses, so he wouldn't have robbed the 26th house, Your Honor. Yeah. Okay. All you need, all you need to absolutely discredit an organization or a person is one big lie. Okay, and you go to jail or you go to prison or you're slammed with a big uh, 250 million dollar fine. Okay. Um, by the way, by the way, Randy, I just want to point out that the flip side of that argument is that unless my client robbed every house on the planet. He could not have robbed any of them. That's over my head. <laughs> Did that make sense? In other Unless, words, that's that's the flip side uh, of the same argument, which shows what a ridiculous argument the okay. original side was. Yeah, you're right. Oh, okay. It's like the Pythagorean theorem. I get, I get you. <laughs> Just like Pythagorean theorem. Okay. I feel like Ray Bolger at the end yeah. of the Wizard of Oz. You know me, RFM. You got to explain things about 37 times and then I'll finally get it. You've got so, a great graphic over here. It looks like there's a weak link. Well, my point is, is that it. one big deception can wreck a whole organization. Yep. Okay. Here I've just showed you six. And and you're right, Rebecca. We do we could do 600. Mm -hmm. But you know, it, it's irrefutable facts of deception. That's that's the point. And the fact that the other links are are solid, as far as we know, doesn't mean a thing. All right. Next slide. Let's uh, we're in the final stretch. I just kind of want to wrap up because we've been to a lot of places and, and here we go. <clears throat> uh, here we go. Don't fail us again. Now. <laughs> I want to reiterate don't believe a word I say. If it sounds harsh, if it sounds unbelievable, if it sounds uncomfortable, just research what I say and, and figure it out. So off we go. The ultimate goal I said this earlier the ultimate goal is for a magician to do a trick so good <clears throat> that it appears paranormal and um, and nobody knows how to crack the code and figure it out. To this day, Houdini was so good. And one reason why I have amassed this collection is, is I have so much respect for this guy. For example, he made an a elephant disappear while surrounded by spectators. And to this day, nobody really knows how he did it. They got some theories. No one knows how he did it. At the Hippodrome, hence yep. the H up there on the architecture. Yep. So it's By a the way, the Hippodrome, the Hippodrome part about the water, I mean, they could fill it with water or they could put a floor over the water. And I don't know if they had water under it. I've heard stories about that, but that's one of the things that made it more impressive was that under the, the floor where the elephant disappeared, I mean, they raised up screens, right? It doesn't just happen in front of people's eyes, but they raised up screens and then they took him down and the elephant was gone. And if he'd gone down into the floor, he would have been potentially a drowned elephant. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been an elephant drone instead of a hippodrome? Oh, good one, Landon. <laughs> <laughs> RFM's not laughing at all. <laughs> I'll explain it later. <laughs> Hippo. Drome I got the oh okay yeah. okay okay very very good yeah yeah baby yeah. mine don't you cry yeah that's exactly right don't you cry it was Landon's version of patter right patter patter right. patter it was a little confusing <laughs> so anyway it's it's just a trick and and we can spend as much or little time on as you want you know superstition there's an article about Mitt Romney and his <laughs> garments which could be arguably on par with a, a uh you know um rabbit's foot 
uh, sunk costs and paying your tithing, astrology and collab, psychics, you know, patriarchal blessings are kind of a, a Mormon version of a psychic reading. Uh, Joseph Smith did everything. He produced stuff, production, vanishing, and levitations are three forms of magic, producing the Book of Mormon, vanishing the gold plates, levitating, which is nothing but based on his story. Um, there's magic everywhere in Mormonism, the more you look at it. Well, look at the transfiguration, right? The reason we're mostly all Mormons, because Brigham, you know, spoke with a whistle, which is how Joseph sounded with his whistle, and convinced people that they saw Joseph's face, even though they weren't even there. So the entire founding of the Brighamite branch is based on a magic trick. That's a transposition. Uh, yes. yes, that's a change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I hate to say it, I know it sounds harsh, but Mormonism is a magic trick disguised as a religion. They, they, I don't know what, uh, I think it's probably better than Scientology, which is mental illness, or, or the Heaven's Gate cult. The Heaven's Gate cult is uh, mental illness disguised as a religion. Scientology is sci-fi, you know, disguised as a religion. But basically, my opinion is Mormonism is a magic trick disguised as a religion. So when we talk about the Mormon church, and, and the, the, we're getting to the end here, there, we got to decide which Mormon church we're talking about, because there's really three Mormon churches. There's the Joseph Smith Church, there's the Salt Lake City Church, and there's the local church. And I, I want to be clear, because I'm a critic, quite obviously. <clears throat> I'm not, I'm a critic of Joseph, the Sm Joseph Smith Church, you know, uh, 200 years ago. I am a critic of the Salt Lake City Church. I would love to debate them, but that will never happen. Uh, I am not a critic of the local church. The people, my neighbors that are in the church, my family, my friends that are still in the church, I'm not sure, I'm not critical of them at all. I love them. They're my friends. I hang out with them. So I just want to make it clear where, at least as far as I'm concerned, where my criticisms are placed. And uh, any any thoughts you guys have? I've got a question for you, uh, if that's okay, Randy. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are, first off, I know that you have a vibrant Christian faith. Mm -hmm. uh, there are those who have looked at Jesus in the same way. In fact, I think it was back in the 1960s. Was it Mort Smith? I can't remember the name of the author. It might be. But I, I remember there was a book about Jesus the magician viewing him in a similar way to the way you sort of characterized Joseph Smith tonight, based upon the text that we have in the New Testament, describing things he did that wowed the yokels in Galilee. Do oh. you see any similarities or differences between Jesus in this role and Joseph Smith, as you've described him? Yeah, well, the, that's an episode, and we're talking about other episodes. That's a whole episode. Um, the The short answer is yes and no. I I do. I, I'm not somebody that believes the the Bible is infallible. I think I think that's a, a little short sighted. Um, and I, I think the bigger the the first question is uh, when I when I had my shelf break, the first thing I did was do my best to clear my biases, clear the slate. I read the books by Don, uh, Dawkins and Dennett and Harrison Hitchens, all the atheists. I, I read them. It was a lot of reading. Honestly, uh, I can tell you all the details later, but I didn't find them compelling, particularly Richard Dawkins, chapter four, where he, the rubber meets the road on his atheism, was, was radically flawed, in my opinion. Um, and so then I went to quantum physics and looked at the question of God, not uh, my belief in God has nothing to do with prayer. It has to do with the evidences 
uh, presented by Francis Collins and, and other scientists out of Harvard and so forth. Um, and then from there, you know, landing on Christianity, it's more, I'm more of a very simple Christian because I believe in the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, uh, you know, the golden, uh, the uh, golden, uh, the what's that? Golden uh, rule. Yeah, the golden rule. Um, that's about as far as it goes. Um, and I can get into why I landed there in more detail later, but that was a quick snapshot of my thought process. Yeah, and I appreciate your your belief system, and uh, it's one that I have dubbed Southern California Christianity. <laughs> I hope I that's it. not offensive. I don't mean it to be offensive. No, I not at all. I love being it. Laid back and non-judgmental. And yeah, and, and for the record, I am not a born-again Christian. I'm not an evangelical Christian. Frankly, some of their behaviors, not all of them, but some of their behaviors are just flat-out embarrassing. So, uh yeah, so I mean, I could go on all day, but we'll we'll wrap things up for this topic. The um, so I, I want to be clear about you know who I'm being critical of, and then the next place we're going is um, I think it's interesting to look at why some Mormons stay because there's some interesting psychology here. Eighty percent of the church is out out of 17 million members. Uh, the church conceals its statistics. But it, it fails to deliver on the Mormon dream. It claims 17 million members. The way I do my math is there's 31 wards and branches. There's about 100 active per ward and branch. If you look at the recent stuff that Bill Real put out, it says to form a ward, it's 100. But we make exceptions for lower, by, by the way. There's, so doing the math there, 31,000 times 100 is 3.1 active, 3.1 million divided by 17 is 18% active. So there's a, you know, I say 20%, I round it up to the church's benefit. There's 20% that are still in. And the way I think about it is people like the structure. It's very structured. And for me personally, even today, from the, uh, my birth to the age of 19, when I went on to the temple for the very first time, it was a really good experience. Boy Scouts, dances, it kept me out of trouble, a lot of structure. So I'm not critical of, of that. It, it was very, for me personally, it was very beneficial. But there's uh, the components that keep us, a lot of us doing uh, things um, in terms of magical thinking. There's a lot of superstitions and fears. There's the sunk cost fallacies, the gambler fallacies we've ever talked about. It's a comfort zone. It's very uncomfortable stepping out of one's comfort zone. There's relationships with job, family, community, and some, some members, you know, actively defend their right to remain ignorant. They don't want to talk about it. They shut down. I have members of my own family that absolutely shut down on the family thread for a solid week if you hint anything negative. And, there, <coughs> excuse me, there's some people that want to change the church from the inside. And I've had a number of people admit that to me um, privately. So those are the reasons why 20% are in. So that's a, a quick download. Any, any thoughts from you guys? This is a great list, Randy. Seriously, this is good. And, and the graphic prior to this was really good too, just showing that we're not attacking individuals and families and friends. I think this is wonderful. And I think it's really important that we make sure everybody understands this. I think you've really hit it on the head here. Absolutely. I had someone say to me just the other day, a family member, well, I don't know if it's all true, but why take that risk, right? Why not just stay in just in case? That is the thinking. It really is. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and I, I didn't realize when I was in how how much magical thinking played into mm -hmm. to your religion. I mean, when you think about it, you know, the garments that they protect you, that you're you go to the temple and you're doing work and all these people on the other side are, are you know, receiving all these benefits from it, uh, that people are putting oil on your head and blessing you and that's mm -hmm. making you better. Uh, you know, the list just goes on and on of all the things. Three Nephites. Do. Don't forget three the three Nephites, Nephites, the stories that go on. Uh, it it takes a lot of magical thinking, angels showing up with plates, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. It is a magical thinking church. You have to think magically to believe this. Oh, yeah. So I have one last trick. I'm going to show you an ordinary lunch bag. Okay. You have my attention. Okay. Can you highlight him, Landon? So there you go. Okay. I got my ordinary uh, uh, lunch bag. I got a bottle of Coke. I put it in, okay, and I make it disappear. Are you thrilled? What? <laughs> Wait. Yeah. You're holding on to it. Uh, well, in here. <laughs> oh, my god! You notice uh, the same process. Start with something ordinary. Do something that leaves some of you going, what? And some of you going, uh, and then stat in with the astounding. So on to our very last slide. <clears throat> So I here I've tried to by you guys. This is outrageous. Oh my god. This is this is our last slide. We can spend as much or a little time as you want on it, but I've tried to kind of summarize because we covered a lot of territory. We've defined magic. Uh, there's magic in Mormonism and its roots from Joseph Smith. Storytelling, the, the correlated um, narrative of the restored gospel is storytelling. And let me tell you, it's a really good story. It really is. Uh, there's an implied contract. Um, and some people are ethical about it, some are not. Step one is look ordinary. Joseph Smith, the, the church will continue and its apologists will continue making Joseph Smith ordinary. Um, and I, my research was based on um, Richard uh, Barons, who is a faithful member of the church. <clears throat> and I'm getting attacked for quoting a faithful member of the church who went to Dartmouth and did the research. So there you go. Uh, ethics, uh, stick with things that have full disclosure, informed consent. Um, and number seven, I wanna pause on here because it's really a tribute to the three of you guys. And that is the courage of the critics, okay? It's a big deal. Houdini pa uh, passionately exposed fraudulent psychics who use undue influence a direct, a direct parallels, a direct parallel to today's post-Mormon researchers and podcasters. So I think that as part of your audience, we owe you guys a great debt of gratitude for having the courage to take on an organization that's worth about three hundred billion dollars. Uh, that's that's courage. Um, <clears throat> cracking the code. Uh, Houdini's tricks often appeared supernatural. Critics have cracked the code with much of Mormonism. I'm saying probably 80, 90 percent. But just like Houdini's uh, disappearing the ele elephant, we may not have it all cracked. But it, you know, it seems like every few months something else is uh, exposed. Uh, there's a lot of magical thinking, and I'm not picking on Mormons. Magical thinking is everywhere. <laughs> Looking down the, the Las Vegas Strip, there's a whole city based on the gambler's fallacy and magical thinking. It's it's all over the place. So I'm not 
singling out or being um, or picking on Mormons per se. And remember, it's just a trick. Just like Sir Cannon Doyle clung to Houdini's notion that, that, that to the notion that Houdini's magic was real, critical thinking skills can be studied and help us untangle the facts from the fantasy. And there you go. Whew, I think we need to applaud. That was absolutely amazing. And Randy, I would put you up there with number seven too. I mean, you go on everyone's podcast and you have just brilliant insights and wonderful things to, wait, to say. And you have such a way of making things so clear that everybody can understand. And I was just absolutely wowed by this presentation. I know we've been discussing it for a while and back and forth on text and things, but just to see it all put together, I'm going to make a prediction right now. I'm going to say, I see, I don't know, a paper coming out of this, a book coming. I see a sunstone presentation coming out of this. I feel like this is just the beginning of this presentation. Well, come um, to Vegas or come to Hollywood or go to a magic show and we'll talk about all that stuff. <laughs> we want to. Are you in Vegas? Uh, you're all over the place, aren't you? So we'll have to compare our calendars. But Landon and I were just talking today that why don't we go visit Randy? That would be really fun. It's not too far away. I think we'd love it. So Well, RFM knows it. I mean it. Uh, you're, you're always welcome. And I, I, I need very little of an excuse to hit the magic castle. Oh, that is awesome. We're in. All right. Um, RFM, any final thoughts on Randy's incredible presentation? <laughs> Unmute yes. yourself and speak. <laughs> yes. Randy is incredible. He's the incredible, he's the amazing Randy. He is the amazing. The second yeah. is what he is. But this whole phenomenon is so interesting. And the reason about Arthur Conan Doyle believing that Houdini was magic in spite of Houdini telling him that he's not is an interesting psychological phenomenon. And it comes from the point of view, and I've seen it before. I have a story about it. I'm not going to tell it now because we're running late, but you'll understand the idea, which is that a, there are some people in the world, and Conan Doyle may have, been, may have been one of them, but there are some people in the world who think that they are so clever that if they cannot figure out how a magic trick is done, then it must be supernatural. And that's the kind of thing we see with Brian Hales about the Book of Mormon. He wants to make Joseph Smith as dumb as possible so the Book of Mormon becomes as impressive as possible coming forth from Joseph Smith's mind. All right? But... But the idea is, from his point of view, that if Brian Hales can't figure out how Joseph Smith created the Book of Mormon, then it must have been done supernaturally. That's the logical fallacy upon which this entire line of argumentation is based. Yep. That, you're absolutely correct. It must be demons, right? It must be something else. It or can't God. Be anything, or God. Can't be anything logical. That's right. And don't take that chance. Even if you're questioning, err on the side of it's God. Absolutely. Yep. I think you hit it right on the head with that one. Landon, do you have any final comments on this incredible presentation? Well, I, I was probably the most impacted of anybody because everyone watching can say that RFM and I uh, had worked that trick out, but I... Yeah. I know nope. I went and bought these cards this afternoon. Yep. I opened the pack. I have no idea how he did that. Uh, and, and it just shows me that, uh, you know, it's easy to sit back and say, well, I can't explain it. So it must be God um, that, that did it. 
Uh, and are and you saying you think RFM is gone? I can't, I can't explain this. So there, there somehow he did that. Uh, and, and that just makes you think, well, it was a connection. There's no something. way I could have done it. Otherwise it was a connection that we made and it worked. And yeah. I'm glad that it worked while we were recording because there's no guarantee as Randy knows. Yeah. When I try this, that it's going to work. <laughs> he has seen it spectacularly explode. So I'm glad it worked tonight. By the way, this whole psychological phenomenon of if you can't figure it out, then it has to be supernatural is what makes the Bill Murray line in Ghostbusters so funny. You're right, Ray. No human being would stack books like that. <laughs> well, I can just say I've played strip poker and I was beat tonight. So RFM, I take my coat off to you. Okay. Thank <laughs> as long you. as just it's don't only stand your up. coat. <laughs> Sorry. And I take my scarf off to you. I love the scarf. scarf. The scarf is very nice. So, well, I think we accomplished what we set out to accomplish. Like I said, we've been talking about this for months and it started just kind of like an idea with what about Houdini? We know that Randy loves Houdini and then we know that RFM loves magic. And can we tie this in with some examples um, to help people understand maybe, you know, why relatives are still in, why you were in for so long, you know, things like that, just kind of understanding the psychology behind it. And, and I really mean it when I say, I feel like this is such a good presentation that I think we'll see this again, either on other podcasts or I feel like Sunstone. So I'd like to thank everybody for hanging in there for two hours. I'd like to thank Landon and RFM and Randy and for all the magic. It was just incredible. Please, uh, viewers and listeners, let us know what you think. Um, did any of this discussion resonate with you? Did you have some aha moments? I feel like a lot of us did. I felt like I looked like this almost the entire show, <laughs> which means it was great information. So yeah, please comment and let us know what you think. And please like and subscribe to Mormonish. And if you'd like to be made aware of when new episodes come out, you can hit that notification bell and we'll let you know when the new ones um, drop. And you can also, if you'd like to financially support Mormonish, you can check out the links in for to PayPal and to Venmo that are always in the show notes. And otherwise, we will see you another time. Thank you so much. Thank you, panelists. And thank you, listeners and viewers from Mormonish. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.